that was the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut. I'm Rachel. I write for Films Fatale about world cinema and lost movies. Who's with me? I'm Andreas. I have created Films Fatale, and I am also one of the primary writers. Um, my top 100 soundtracks just came out earlier this month. And in a couple of weeks, at the start of October, my top 100 original scores in film history is coming out. Who else is here? James here, content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and I am also a writer for Films Fatale in charge of a column dealing with no-budget cinema. And this week was my pick for the episode, so I thought it'd be fun to talk double features. Ooh. What made you want to come up with this idea? I mean, it's such a staple in cinematic history, but what in particular interested you about about this about you know the idea of the double feature i just thought it might be fun to talk about because you know it's not uncommon for anybody to whether you're going to see one in a theater or you're having a movie night with friends that you're likely to want to watch more than one movie consecutively at any given time for something or another i mean we're all around 30 so who has the energy these days you have to remember I could I I watched almost all of the nominees for the Oscars in a month. I have no problem with watching two movies in a sitting. <laughs> Fair enough. You're in good company. We've all watched an unhealthy amount of movies. So Fair enough. Um why don't you kick things off? Because it sounded it sounds like you had something in mind. Well, so when I was coming up with this episode, I obviously presented the concept of pick something that makes sense as a double feature, not necessarily something you've seen, but something that works as a double feature that you recommend to others. And I was trying to think because I had so many options in my head, but then it clicked. I decided to go with Psycho and Peeping Tom, both released in 1960. Okay. Ooh, that's actually a really good one. Yeah. That would be a great combo. Yep. Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock and Peeping Tom by Michael Powell. So I picked them because obviously they go together. It was like, they're both made in the same year and they both deal with the same subject and both are, you know, that's what kind of like, planted the seeds for the slasher genre. And I also noticed that they tackle the same subject of trauma and parental abuse, Mm -hmm. which is funny because it's like the productions have nothing to do with each other. So the fact that both of them landed on the same subject, but in two different ways is very interesting. It's funny, there's a kind of a phenomenon where that happens frequently. Like one year there was two movies about Truman Capote. Um, there were uh, there was at one point two movies about meteor crashes. Like it comes up that way sometimes. And we had three movies about the Battle of Dunkirk <laughs> a couple, few years ago. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, I just thought they're both classics and from kind of that classic era. But they were also very innovative for the time because they were both kind of strange movies when they came out, and they're both actually highly controversial, for better or for worse. Well, Peeping Tom was like completely reviled, unlike Hitchcock, where I feel like Hitchcock angered people, but he was also acclaimed for his work. Um, right. Michael Powell's entire career was destroyed, and I feel like if Pressburger was alongside with him for this, his would be too. I would have loved to see the Pressburger and Powell version of that one. Print, print a producer card, I'm sure. <laughs> There'd be ballet, though. Right, perhaps. There'd be more of a waltz when people die, I guess. Yep. Well, it's also, they both take unique approaches to their storytelling. And there's, you know, two specific nuances that I think spilled over into modern cinema. Obviously, you know, Psycho's big trick that they played on the audience was making you believe that the focal point of the story was the would-be victim 
of Norman Bates. You know, all the, you know, all the promotional materials surrounding it dealt with her. You know, the main part of the movie seems to be following her. And then out of nowhere, she's killed. And it's like, wait, hold on. What? Yeah, it was this swerve from left field. Yeah, it was a massive twist of fate, back, especially back in the 60s. Um, I remember I had a prof, uh, shout outs to Quentin, if you're hearing this, I don't know what's happened to you, but you're virtually the only other person in my undergrad who listened to Swans alongside me, so we, we got along pretty well. But when he was comparing it to modern day cinema to our class, it was like an intro to Film 101, and a lot of these people, like this was an elective, a lot of people weren't actually studying cinema, so he had to like kind of break down a lot of stuff. He basically said, that happening today would be like in Bridget Jones's diary if if Renee Zellweger within the first five minutes just gets brutally hit by a car and for no rhyme or reason like just it just happens like that was how jarring it was back then it just, like nobody saw it coming and didn't it even change how movies were shown in theaters it changed like you couldn't come in after the movie started that kind of thing yeah he had that uh that little poster or that um that display that I remember he's like pointing to his wrist. Like if you, you, you better show up on time. Otherwise you're not going to be allowed into psycho. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. But yeah. It also, um, that also thing was almost perfected, if not surpassed by Wes Craven when he did scream, you know, Drew Barrymore was all of the promotional materials and he kills her right away within the first few minutes of the movie. And that's even more shocking because it's like, Oh, I thought this person was going to be in for the entire ride. Especially such a big name. Yeah. Yeah. She was right. very famous back then. And then with Peeping Tom, the point of view murders, which would later be more capitalized in the in things like the first Friday of the 13th, you know, right. you don't see the killer. You just have the point of view and then like the victim's reaction right before. And I just thought that was very striking because it's like, I think things that are implied are often more terrifying than things right up front. Yeah, that's kind of how Jaws worked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, like the less you see the shark. Um which was a very clever way of getting around, you know, the very mechanical-looking shark. It's, uh, you know, a great way to disguise it, but also a fantastic cinematic opportunity. But uh, what what I find interesting, since you brought up Friday the 13th, is that I feel like Peeping Tom was so misunderstood for its time, and I feel like what it inspired also misunderstood it, because I feel like what Michael Powell was saying was a lot more than just let's see some bodies at the floor, like, like, let's do a slasher film. So even those who tried to imitate it and were inspired by it, I feel like we're completely misreading it. But that's, that's also kind of interesting in its own way. Like, that's not a bad thing to be inspired against the wishes of the director. But, I mean, there you go. That's, both films are very striking of pop culture and how different audiences read the film. And I guess uh, one helped create new Hollywood. The other one helped create the slasher film for better or for worse. Right. And they're also almost perfect bookends because they both, they have these, they're similar in a lot of ways, but they also occupy certain spaces of aesthetic spectrum. Psycho's black and white. Peeping Tom's in color and the colors are very well done. Well, pretty much almost everything Michael Powell did was in color. Like even back in the thirties, it's like colorize it. (laughs) It's just got to make it happen. Yes. Some of the greatest examples. <laughs> and then the killers, the way they worked, 
uh, not necessarily the way they work, but their personalities. Like Norman Bates is a very withdrawn, kind of an awkward person, and almost I think kind of problematic because it almost stigmatized people of that archetype that we always assume are problematic. But in Peeping Tom, the killer, he's just he's got a guy, he's got a career, you know, he's a good looking guy. I mean, throughout the movie, then the girl next door takes interest in him, and he's the guy you would least suspect. Right. Until you start finding out all this other stuff and you know his traumatic childhood, and um, I, I I think the one thing that Peeping Tom does better was how densely layered his trauma was because there was evidence of it because his dad basically did experiments on him. It wasn't just a traditional abuse. It was like okay, he had this record of his abuse through tapes and you know he was basically being studied, whereas Norman Bates just had you know. Well, he had that over-oppressive mother, so, I mean, he had his yeah. own issues as well. But I, 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 get, I get what you're saying. If he beat Tom, it's like, it, it, it goes the distance. And I hate to say it, uh, if I depict between the two, I think Peeping Tom's the better movie. Sorry, Hitchcock. Oh, man. I totally agree. I'm, I'm going to go with Hitchcock myself, although I will say that specific elements of Peeping Tom are for sure better. Like, I feel like the horror elements of it have certainly aged a lot better, for sure. Mm-hmm. yeah that's that's my double feature i recommend it to anybody who likes movies in general especially those of the slasher genre and i guess there's no like preferred order like either or starting and ending is fine yeah you could do either or i mean yeah they're really i don't think there's really a preference i maybe maybe start with psycho because it's i think it's more familiarized because peeping time does kind of take the back seat as far as like commercially it's not as referenced as psycho is you can always see it as you know psycho could be the main event so even then you could put peeping tom ahead so it's like that's true the underseen film next to the one that's like seen as classics so. yeah well i mean they, they also never revisited peeping tom because you know they they did sequels to psycho and then they also had uh what was it is it bates motel is that what that series is called yeah with the young yeah. Norman bates and the vince vaughn remake Oh yeah! That's oh yes, the so Vince Vaughn, the almost shot-for-shot shot remake by Gus Van Sant, which isn't good. No, it is. Uh, it is not good. But what will be good, I'm sure, is Rachel's double feature. What What do you have paired up? Well, my first thought was to pair Daisies with uh, Verchtelova's Daisies with Broad City, the TV series, because I think they have a similar vibe, and I would be shocked if the creators of Broad City have not seen that movie. But that is a TV show, so I cannot use it. Honorable mention. I did like the idea of daisies, though, because I think that's the kind of movie that can translate to many different aspects of many different times and and regions. So I thought I would pair it with F.W. Murnau's Sunrise, which may be one of the greatest films ever made. That is amazing. Yes. Yeah. So one film is from 20s Hollywood. It's a bit subversive for its day, but it's very much part of the system as well. It even won an Oscar for not Best Picture. (laughs) Uh, unique and artistic well, production. Yeah, technically best picture, but it yeah. just didn't exist anymore. And uh, I guess they went with the Wings best picture as like the official one. I don't know. Yeah, but anyway, it's part of the system. Then you've got Verchitilova's Daisies, which comes from the Czech Republic during the or Czechoslovakia as it was then during the communist era, and I think is much more transgressive from the get go. Both films examine decadence. They examine different ways of living within a society. And what the pitfalls are therein. And so I think putting these together from very different times, places, and economic contexts would be very interesting. 
I like this because your typical your typical mindset when you are doing or like you know the general you like anyone is doing a double feature something a little bit more literal like do you have um, specific narratives I'm like mine's pretty literal as well uh, I was wanting to do something a little bit more cryptic let's say but I just got too happy with it so in this instance this is a double feature that really makes you think like what common ground is there yet there's more than the surface implies. Yes, and they're both very different, so you can't get too bored. And they both stand out very well on their own, so. And I feel like they both, like, I can't imagine, like, the common cinephile watching this type of double feature, but for the hardcore art house cinephile, this would be like a match made in heaven. Like, wow, what a sonic experience. Like, you've got... Um, one of the greatest silent films of all time, especially when it comes to its artistic identity, and then Daisies is uh, a classic piece of feminist filmmaking, and its aesthetics and art style are also singular. So you've got these two riveting films as experiences, but also as political companions to the eras that they came from and, uh, and the countries that they're attached to. Absolutely. So... They don't look quite the same on the surface, but I think paired together they would turn out to have quite a bit in common. Yeah, I I adore both, James. I believe you've seen neither, correct? Correct. You oh, should next go edition of leave the podcast and watch them both now because they're awesome. Yeah, I, I actually think it that would be a damn good idea, especially if that's how you go about it for the first time, watching them both back. And they're both pretty short, too, I think. Like, Daisy's is, like, just over an hour, I think, and... Uh, like maybe an hour and a half, and so is Sunrise, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I could probably do that. I mean, I did watch World on a Wire in the same day, so I don't think I'd have a problem with that. World on a Wire is longer than both combined, I think. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, for mine, I, I again, I went pretty, um, pretty basic. My first initial one, I wanted to do Under the Skin and the Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, but... Even though this isn't too, too different, I, I, I had to go with something else. And I, I, I just couldn't get away from this because I've heard these films discussed in relation to each other so often. And it's like, I've got to think of a better double, double feature that just people don't talk about. But I, I just I couldn't escape it. So I'm doing Stalker and an Annihilation. So uh, Annihilation is for sure for sure influenced by Stalker. And, uh, yeah, I, it would be a, a fairly long double feature because I think Annihilation is two hours and Stalker is three, so not, not quite as bite-sized as, as yours, Rachel. But what I love is Stalker is this uh, science fiction film with political undertones where you're brought to this area outside of, you know, uh, rural Russia where... It's like this this desolate, like, abandoned house, I think. But it contains a superpower where if you enter there, you can have a wish fulfilled. And it could be anything. It could be, like, uh, a psychic capability, bringing back somebody from the dead. It doesn't matter what it is. And the entire film kind of, like, slowly, gradually brings you to this place called The Zone. And the closer they get, the characters that we're watching, and the the person bringing them 
the more everybody starts to go delirious through philosophical backtracking, like, should I do this? Would this be a good idea? And the, the idea, the capability overwhelms them. So the zone itself is a gold mine, but the journey itself is a cancerous one. Meanwhile, Annihilation, the place everyone's trying to get to is the cancer spot. They're trying to get rid of this, this alien life form that is, that is slowly deforming the area around it. It's like creating the spectrum of light that's reflecting everything within it. So um, different species and life forms start to converge. And the delirium comes from the deeper you go, not because of like this philosophical discussion, but because you're getting closer and closer to the source of the disease. And I feel like even though there's a lot of similarity and they're both science fiction masterpieces, as far as I'm concerned, um, the objectives are different and different enough that you don't feel like you're watching the same movie twice. One is to fulfill oneself while losing yourself on the way. And the other is to try and stop the corrosion of civilization and the world will sacrificing yourself in the process. So that that's my double feature stalker and annihilation. I've seen stalker, but not a lot, annihilation. So I'd really love to see how that turned out. Oh, I've seen annihilation and not stalker. I do own stalker though. I just haven't watched it yet. Well, I know what you're both doing tonight. <laughs> I guess we got to go hang out. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, James, I recommend stalker. Stalker is like, Annihilation, but surprisingly, like even better if you love Annihilation. It's the root source. Stalker is like a masterpiece of Russian cinema, so I cannot recommend it enough. It's one of the greatest films of the 70s. And Rachel, yeah, Annihilation's brilliant. It's a brilliant um, addition to one's love for Stalker, I would say. So there you go. Speaking of uh, double features, that was our first half. James, what are we? what's in store for the second half? Well, for the second half, I thought it'd be fun to discuss a double feature experience we had that we really enjoyed. Fantastic. So for those listening at home, does this include only theatrical releases or can this be ones that we've done ourselves or somebody showed us? Anything's fair game. All right. Okay, fantastic. Why don't you set the tone? Uh, what's your... Uh, what is your favorite past double feature experience? So this one took place in theaters and it was quite an experience because of how long I ended up being at the theater. It was a time when my wife and I and a couple of friends went and saw Blade Runner 2049 double featured with the original playing first. Ooh. And, you know, I love Blade Runner one of the best movies that ever came out of the 80s. You know, one of Harrison Ford's best roles and one of Ridley Scott's best movies. Seeing that first, I was like, okay, it was it was good to refresh myself, not just watching it at home, but like seeing it on the big screen was quite an experience just seeing it. And then seeing Blade Runner 2049, you never quite expect a sequel done so long after do an amazing job at expanding on what the original had accomplished. Right, absolutely. But what I also like is that it is very much its own film as well. So Oh yeah. The original is I I'm gonna be honest, it's it's cynical, but it's it feels a little bit more 
it's not optimistic about the future, not by any stretch, but it feels a little bit more like there's life within it, just kind of struggling life, but it's like more about like the different classes of society where Blade Runner 2049 is like, everything's gone. Everything's dead. This is like the world. The world itself is just like suffering now. And it's even more dismal, even more frigid, despite the fact that a good portion of the film is like a hot, bright orange. Yeah, so Blade Runner is like is like an overpopulated future, whereas 2049 is like all of that's gone. Right, it's fully entrenched in dystopia. Exactly. So it's it's like we're seeing either side of the spectrum of of a very dismal future. And I think I think it's so complementary to the original. Of course I prefer the original, but both films back to back, I was very, very hesitant when the sequel was announced. That's one of the finest sequels. One of the finest sequels, for sure. Well, I think it helps that they got Denis Villeneuve, who was already on a hot streak and was proving he was a master of cinema. For him to take on a property like this and also for Hampton Thatcher to co-write the screenplay like he did for the original Braid Runner, I think that's what made it work. It's like somebody who you could tell that Denis understood what that original film was trying to do and wanted to expand on it. And the fact that Hampton Thatcher could come up with a story where it wasn't, he didn't have to deal with intervention this time because as everybody knows, Blade Runner had a troubled production history and release history. And I think the fact that it didn't have to suffer from that, I think added to it. I think the only problem was the marketing was done all wrong. It was, they played up too much of the fact that it was a sequel to Blade Runner when literally only what middle-aged sci-fi nerds cared about. Cause all it was, was like, you know, it was basically just teasers and it's like, Oh, it's, you know, it's implied that it's Blade Runner and it's like, Oh, Harrison Ford's back. And it's like, had they really taken the time to actually like promote the movie as it was, I think it would have fared better commercially. Especially because it's Denny Villeneuve who just had a rifle and I feel like, I mean, look at Dune. Well, Dune's also got its, you know, literary audience, I guess. But uh, after Arrival, which was an original feature, he had his audience. I mean, people have been watching him since Prisoners or in some cases, like myself, also on D. So um, it would have fared really well on its own. It didn't need that, that tagline. Yeah, it was just, you know, it was, I think overall total was I was at the theater for like six or seven hours or something like that. Cause like, of course you had to get there early and then there was the break in between and the, you know, cause, cause the original better was like, what, like, I think like two hours and then Blade Runner 2049 was two hours or 45 minutes. So it was just, just, that was a lot of time. I had never spent that much time in a movie theater before. There are worse ways to spend a day. Oh, that's very true. Well, James, we're going to have to rectify that. You're going to have to come to TIFF where you're in a movie theater watching like five things in a day. That sounds awesome. What about you, Rachel? Was your perfect double feature that you've seen, was that a TIFF or was that like completely unrelated? No, it wasn't an on-purpose double feature in that they weren't placed together in a theater or anything. But the Oscars do often make for unusual double features that you kind of come to on your own because there are so many different movies nominated and you're rushing to catch up with them. So my friend and I were pretty desperate to go through uh, the Oscar movies, or at least the major ones, before the time came. So we wound up watching Carol and Mad Max back to back. Wow. And it was awesome. What a dichotomy. Uh, explain what, why, why this is a fantastic double feature that you had. 
I cannot think of two sublime movies that are so completely different besides these two. Like, Fair enough. <laughs> they are both very much at the top of their aesthetic game, but it's two completely different visions. You've got George Miller, you've got the raging road, you've got the torn down world, and then you've got this beautiful palette of the 1950s that's basically imitating Douglas Sirk, and it's the Todd Haynes aesthetic. So it was a really good combination, and it showed me just how two movies can be very, very good, but not resemble each other at all. Yeah, they're both fantastic films by their respective filmmakers in their own right. Um, they both have attention to them, like this, this mm -hmm. brooding tension, but completely different. One's uh, a forbidden love, the other one being let's not die in the middle of the desert. So you and have every these, detail uh, is perfect. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like, in a weird sense, aren't their color palettes a little similar? Like, Mad Max is very orange, Carol's very yellow? Not really. Carol's very green and blue and darker, in my experience. Like, kind of Christmassy winter colors. I guess so. I do recall, like, uh, maybe maybe some, some moments, but... Kate uh, Blanchett is blonde, though. She is. She is blonde. Would you want to do this double feature again? Because it sounds like it was completely accidental. Yeah, I kind of wind up doing something like this every Oscar season, but I think it often has good results, so I totally would. All right, for mine, uh, also completely accidental, I was just watching it from at home, and I didn't even know that these films were going to correlate. So the first time I ever saw the second movie, I watched something in the morning, and I basically came down downtown to watch an Oscar movie with my girlfriend. And I didn't know that they would actually have like some, some common ground. So the first film I saw was Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. And the second film I saw was the animated masterpiece, The Red Turtle. And it, I'd never seen The Red Turtle before, whereas All That Jazz I was very familiar with. And both films are very breathtaking depictions of life and death and the cycle of in which we we exercise the human existence. So in all that jazz, you see this um, this really worn out like choreographer, like this, this this dance choreographer, basically getting by with you know his his toxic lifestyle, his his use of pills, um, again his, his living his double life. And the music basically just overcomes him. Like, he's envisioning, like, an afterlife or, like, you know, in his, in his subconscious, like, an alternative reality as if it were a musical. And it's a very dark look at somebody who's basically facing the end a lot sooner than they should, like, only in his middle age. Meanwhile, the Red Turtle is this animated dialogue less, so instead of, like, this lyrical musical masterpiece. You have this this dialogueless animated feature with one of the greatest original scores I've ever heard. It's very like moving and at times operatic, and it's this man who's deserted on an island faces this turtle that keeps it thwarting him when he tries to leave the island. And I don't want to say too too much outside of that, but it's it's very much a fable, and. I, I just love the metaphorical approaches either through animation or through the musical medium that these creative minds took to explain their own fears, 
that they're facing coming to the end of their lives. Or, you know, these are essentially midlife crises. But the fear that death could come at any second and that life was basically wasted or misunderstood and that you're fighting to cling back onto every last second, whether you're deserted on an island or you're wasting every second on a stage. So that was my accidental double feature. And uh, let me tell you, tears were shed that day. Tears were shed. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, otherwise we're going to end things off with our... With our um, a singular weekly recommendations. So there's only going to be one of each, so we're not going to do some random recommendations of double features. Uh, Darn you, I prepared a double. (laughs) Oh, have you? Yeah. Okay, I'll try and and conjure up one in a matter of seconds. We'll see how well that goes. You guys don't need to. We're all different people. Oh, I can totally do it. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, Rachel, do you want to go ahead then? Sure. So my combination that I have not tried out yet but would like to is Network and Being There. Because I think they're both movies from roughly 40 to 45 years ago that are more relevant now than they were then. Fantastic. So like, it's not about them correlating with each other, but how they matter to us as a society now. Yes, I think that Network encapsulates the frustration of the day, and then Being There is sort of the absurd side of that. I like it, actually. I haven't tried it out, but having seen both, that sounds brilliant, actually. James, what about you? So this is a double feature I've been meaning to do, and I just never have. And it was honestly one of the ones I was going to suggest as my like suggested double feature for the beginning, but I decided to go with Psycho People Tom. But uh, I'd recommend uh, Upstream Color and Spring Breakers. Speaking of Upstream Color, yeah, there's some very, very colorful films, and they're both, both completely different ways. Well, they also both deal with loss of identity in very interesting ways. And they're both by directors who are definitely not shy about how avant-garde they can be. I mean, one is Shane Carruth, who did Primer, and that, you know, obviously his style of filmmaking is going to be very interesting. But also, you know, Spring Breakers is by Harmony Korine, and he's definitely not known for being subtle. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, For me, my random recommendation, and this is off the top of my head, I've made this recommendation to somebody I know, like, like, actually a couple of days ago. So I'm just going to use it now. Um, I'm going to recycle it. Uh, Murnau's Nosferatu and uh, Herzog's Nosferatu, the vampire. So what makes this interesting is it's obviously not a remake of Dracula, but a remake of Nosferatu specifically, you know, the Herzog film. But uh, Herzog completely tries to revamp, no pun intended, what, German expressionism would look like in the 70s. So I think they complement each other very nicely. And believe it or not, uh, unsurprisingly, of course, uh, Herzog's film is a lot more pessimistic. When that it comes makes to sense. Like, yeah, the, yeah, like the world that encompasses the vampire itself. So that would be my double feature. Otherwise... Speaking of the very niche field of double Dracula features, you should also be at home playing along with our cinematic smorgasbord. We are doing Spanish Dracula and kind of pairing it up with the Bela Lugosi Dracula as our collective thing. And then our individual films are When the Wind Blows, um, Phantom of the Paradise, and George Washington. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the K-Cut. There couldn't have been a better segue than that. Thank you so much. That was the K-Cut. And if you would like to do your own double feature, uh, you can listen to another episode of ours. We've got quite a few, so... Yeah, check us out. More episodes. Thank you for listening. Uh, Again, that was the K-Cut. Now we're going into the L-Cut. Bye.